We all know dental school is hard, but being a dentist in the real world is even harder. And what about all those things they don't teach you in dental school, like how to talk to patients and when to buy a practice? New Dentist Boost Camp is here to help you. Easily download and watch 12 hours of valuable CE, giving you tools you will want to implement immediately to help with your day-to-day in the office and lessons that will help you through your entire dental career. Learn from Dr. Paul Goodman and top dental professionals. Gain confidence in crown preps, class 2 composites, root canals, and implants. Increase patient acceptance. Effectively communicate to your patients and your dental team. This beneficial course is $9.95, but because Dental Nachos loves to see happy dentists succeeding, they are offering new dentist boost camp to dental students for $3.95. Visit DentalNachos.com slash NDBC for more information and to purchase your discounted download of New Dentist Boost Camp. Watch it and re-watch it anytime. This will be an impactful reference tool that you can continue to learn from and use. Buy it today to help you find a good job, start paying your student loans back faster, and feel great about dentisting. That's what it's all about. Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are The Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery, and I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman. Great to be here, Rob. It's good to see you, Paul, as always, and uh, welcome to another episode of The Dental Amigos. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Andrew Matta, uh, someone from the DSO world by request, right, yeah, Paul? Yeah, very popular topic. And uh, Dr. Andrew Matta is a, uh, a practicing dentist. Uh, but is also a uh, very integral uh, member of the North American Dental Group, uh, which we'll talk about today during the show. Uh, In uh, 2005, a year after graduating from dental school, uh, Dr. Matta acquired his first dental practice in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and founded Serenity uh, Dental Care. Over the next four years, this group practice grew and acquired multiple other practices in the region with a focus on high-quality patient care, and treating the anxious patient. In 2010, Dr. Matta partnered and co-founded Refresh Fresh Dental Management, which is now known as the North American Dental Group. The company is a DSO model that has currently over 205 practice locations in the Northeast and Southeast and continues to grow at a very high rate. On the side, when he's not uh, in the DSO world or practicing dentistry, Dr. Matta is a triathlete with a focus on endurance distances. And when he says endurance distances, he means it, Paul. So he's completed 11 Ironman half or full triathlon events. And he also loves to travel and sail. And now, without further ado, here's Dr. Andrew Matta. Welcome, amigo, and thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate you guys having me on. So let's say, uh, Andrew, you finished one of these uh, triathlons, and I meet you at the end. I didn't do the triathlon part, but uh, and we go for nachos. Uh, where, what is your uh, favorite topping, and where would we go if we were in uh, Pittsburgh? All right, the so favorite, I got to say guacamole. I'm definitely a guacamole and nachos kind of guy, and El Canelo's is a nice, authentic Mexican restaurant in northern Pittsburgh. I think they've got a handful of locations, so... That's my go-to for Nice. Me. have to come up and try it there. Thanks. It's cool. Well, thanks uh, Thanks again for being on the show. And so, as uh, I said to Paul earlier, uh, after we did our show on uh, group practices, I had a couple of clients reached out, and they said, Rob, throughout the show, you kept talking about the good part <laughs> and the bad part, and all we heard was about the bad part. So when are you <laughs> going to talk about the good part? So today, you know, hopefully we're going to talk about the good part and what group practice can lead to and kind of how you've leveraged that in, in your career. So, you know, if you could uh, take us through your early days in your dental career. So uh, a year out of dental school, which 
back in you know the early 2000s that was pretty soon to to break out into practice ownership but tell us how you came about to acquire your first practice so yeah i think uh that um era you know kind of early mid 2000s um the dental industry was you know i i think still in in that ramp period off of the 90s where there was you know, a lot of growth. So I think a, a number of individuals um, that was still the mindset is you know, kind of get out of school, um, maybe do the traditional route where you'd be an associate for a period of years and then look to purchase a practice. You know, my mindset, I think, was a little bit more wanting to um, hit the ground running. So I was talking to individuals during dental school and, you know, right when I completed my residency, actually during my residency, I was purchasing my first practice. So it was um, all teed up right when I finished my residency in 2005, kind of hit the ground running. Nice. And uh, where did you do your uh, residency training? I was at St. Elizabeth Hospital in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, Cool. I did a one-year GPR after after school, and it kind of helped. I think it was really helpful clinically. Um, It also allowed kind of another year for for kind of the practice model to organize itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of GPRs. I uh, teach at Albert Einstein. I just like that year where you can kind of practice with uh, in a supportive environment and it can just have a great impact on your, your career for that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So then uh, when you owned one practice, was it your, your grand plan at that time to, to get into multiple practice ownership or what was, what was the transition from one to more? For, for you, Andrew? Yeah, I think that was the, the idea and the vision uh, right out of the gates was to, you know, spend whatever time, you know, feel kind of concentrate and really get the, um, the business model down, the practice flow, um, understand the, the ins and outs of just, you, you can understand business. And I studied a little business through school and, um, and even got an MBA while I was uh, in dental school. But even within that, you know, it's, it's just every industry has its nuances. And you can understand the clinical side from dental school, but certainly they don't teach any of the business side. And so it was definitely the vision. Um, I didn't necessarily have a, a certain meter of how many practices I needed to get to by a certain date. It was more, you know, as strategically made sense, continue to expand the model. And um, the first handful of things were purchasing doctors that were retiring um taking on their practices it made sense in the first handful because they were regionally kind of close in proximity to bring the first uh i think it was probably the first four that i purchased together into one larger facility um so that was the first step and then the next thought was okay let's become um you know multi-site and you know, that was happening at the same time where I met an individual that um, was in the same area on the Ohio side, and he had a dental practice management company and already had a number of locations, and he and I had a lot of connections and value alignment, so it was a good partnership, and that's kind of how we, um, that's how, that was my entry into multi-site. That's cool. Now, you said that, um, you uh, went to business school. Did you do that uh, while you were in dental school, or which, uh, where, where did that fit in with your, uh, your academic career? So University of Pittsburgh had the ability to take MBA classes while you were in the program, but I didn't complete it while I was in, um, in dental school. It was during my residency that I finalized. So I did the first probably third of the credits at the University of Pittsburgh and finished uh, at Tulane. While I was completing my residency. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. That's a very cool angle. I mean, you know, we talk to a lot of people on, on the show and not surprisingly, the ones that are most successful are the ones that kind of come at it in, in a different way or come to the dental industry in a different world, whether it's Mark Costas with his, his lunch truck yeah. or others, but it's very interesting to, to hear that, you know, you went out to get your business education, you know, not relying on dental school to do it, but just, went to business school and, and, and got that on, under your belt. That's awesome. And I think I could relate, Andrew, in your triathlon legs, what's, what's your favorite part of the triathlon? 
Definitely the bike. And what's your, and your least favorite? Uh, you know, I don't know that I have a least favorite because I, I like to swim and I like to run, but I would say that by the time you're running, after you're on a bike for so long, and it, you just that's where the grind happens. So I got to say the run, I, I don't mind running individually, but the end of a long race, that's certainly the least enjoyable segment. And I think, you know, me. we have this new dance boost camp program and it's built on a uh, training dentists with their clinical skills, you know, their, their hands, their minds, mind and words. And, you know, I, I just think it's important that you are thinking and learning about business at an early stage in your career. And whether that means you're going to own just a solo practice and be, uh, successful or own a few or or start running a DSO. I just think that's just such a, a critical time to start becoming well-rounded, just like a triathlete, because there's, you know, multiple parts of the dental career and dental school tends to just focus on on one part and uh, leave out the other the other parts. And I just think that especially now in 2019, that's just such a, a challenging thing for young students to come out and not have been exposed to any of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll say what the business school, um, I think, gave me the um, the most help with was actually having the most respect for the value of what a specialist brings in, in the business world. So we're used to and comfortable saying, okay, this, you know, if a general dentist is, you know, during certain things, kind of when and where to lean on, you know, a specialist, an endodontist, oral surgeon, periodontist, anything like that. And we respect that. But what the business school did is it kind of helped me to understand, yeah, I, I may know and have familiarity with certain things, but, you know, I didn't build a career, you know, running this department in an organization and going on to another organization and running this side of the finance side. So it gave me exposure to all of them, but certainly helped me to realize, yeah, in a business world, very quickly, um, it made me appreciate integrating other skill sets so that, you know, as we grew the company, you really rely on, on experts of whatever department it is that you're bringing, be it HR, be it legal, be it finance, accounting. That, that I think, is um, what it helped me the most in. Management, so, right? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. what business school is all about, yeah. Yep. That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, so at some point you went from being uh, a multiple practice owner, a, a decent sized multiple practice owner, to, to a much much bigger one. Talk to us about about that uh, that transition. Yeah, I certainly, um, you know, I'm humbled to see how large our organization has become, and we're continuing to grow at a fairly fast rate. So, you know, the organization effectively started in 2008. Um, and, you know, so 11 years later, we're at this size. So it's a fast growth rate. I, I would say that, um, you know, it was just an evolution and strategic opportunities that would come up. You would integrate them or, or find uh, pathways to evaluate, does this make sense? And, and we grew mainly, and different companies have different models, um, we did a little bit of, of the de novo model where we did some practice startups, but mainly um, we were doing affiliations with doctors that started with single practices, and and then we um, had certain small groups that we had integrated anywhere from you know six to ten practices along the way, and kind of each opportunity was unique in itself, and just evaluating them and, and most of all seeing do they fit into you know, our core value system and the, the, um, the practice personality, I think that we would be looking for. So I think that was, um, we didn't necessarily say, Hey, we want to get to 30, 40, 50 practices. I think that was kind of initially like, Oh, it'd be good to get up to a number like that. But then as opportunities continue to present, we continued to try to build a team that could help be a resource to those practices and groups. It continued to grow. So that, that's a perfect lead into our next question. So what types of things is North American looking for when, when it comes to a, a practice acquisition? You know, there, there are, I think, two sides. The first and foremost is a cultural fit. So, you know, there's not, um, 
those are kind of sometimes the harder things to define, but you kind of know when it's a fit, you know when it's not. And it doesn't mean that the practice is bad or the person is bad. It's either just the personality meshes, and I think the simplest way to put it is, you know, can you have dinner, can you have a drink with the guy or, or, the, or the person and just be able to, you know, get along with them? And then do you find a sense that the mission and vision can line up together? So I think the first is, is those cultural items. And then there are practice profiles that we look for. Um, we found that, you know, there, there is a business model. And early on, we did some um, practices that maybe were smaller in the amount of revenue. And it's not all about revenue. Um, but smaller practices kind of looking to kind of buy them at maybe two, 300,000 in revenue and grow them you know, sometimes that, that's its own, um, it can be done and it can be done really well. And some individuals are very good at it, but it takes a certain type of concentration to do that. And then a different concentration is more, Hey, something is successful in its own right, be it a million, two million in revenue. How do you integrate that and kind of bring that culture into maybe a larger culture? And that's become somewhat of the profile for a single practice acquisition. But our last few years of growth, um, you know, we actually look for individuals that have been able to put together a small group, and that's been kind of our, our biggest fit. So how do we, as North American, look? It, it's um, There is a profile, but it starts with the cultural fit. And we also are not looking for exit strategies. Um, we're looking for individuals that are, mid-career doesn't mean that they're not late career but we have found that when we bring in you know partner with a practice if the main provider um is not you know looking for this and and we don't look for hey just a year to give us or two years we're hoping that they want to have you know another chapter of their career with us and really look for them to become a partner in the organization as well and that may be a little bit in the weeds into our specific model, but at the end of the day, we are hoping that the the team really connect to the the person that they've looked at as a leader, whether it be a single practice or multiple, and we want that individual to be present as long as possible, um, and hopefully they're mid-career and they're looking for you know another ten plus years to partner in our model. Thank, thanks for sharing that, uh, Andrew. How often, how like, how long do most of the uh, partners or the dentists stay post transition into North American? Because it sounds like longer than maybe some traditional DSOs. Like, would you say five years plus is is a easy mark to say? Yeah, I would. I would say yeah, it, it's certainly north of five years. Um, and again, we are we're looking for individuals that want to partner with us and continue to grow what they've done. So it seems to attract. Um, less of an exit strategy. So it doesn't mean that we never come across individuals. So there are, there are ones that have, you know, worked, you know, three years or so. I would say at least three years is what we would look for. Gotcha. And, you know, hopefully longer. I think a lot of people sort of, you know, a misconception that Paul and I yeah. are talking about is that they think that if you're going to do a deal with a DSO, you're going to come in and the, and the, the DSO is just going to change everything right, yeah. about the practice to take, you know, whatever, you know, uh, your cultural uh, environment is and your your vibe in the practice and, and totally scrap it and put their imprint on it. But what I'm hearing from you is validates what Paul and I observe otherwise, which is that's exactly not the case. You're exactly right. I mean, just putting on a business hat for a second, if you look at what are the big influences of value, it's typically leadership and the goodwill of the doctor providers, you know, and that may be the, the head doctor of the practice, but the associates are also incredibly valuable as is the team. So, you know, we try very hard to, um, there are certain things that do have to go through a transition period. You know, we use one management system for, you know, for the um, dental practice management and we use one, you know, there's certain things that do transition, but you want to retain the, the team. The patients connect with the team. The patients connect with the providers. You know, so 
the goodwill of the business. Maybe whatever it is that you give that goodwill value, that's kind of less of the point. The essence of that is hugely important. Yeah, that's 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 part of you. If you could, uh, you know, we're both dentists here, Rob. You're not a dentist. I'm sorry. You're you're you're. We Rob one day. Paul, Paul I, picks on me. Yeah, a lot, I want to Andrew get, for you know being the lawyer in the room. So if you could, he, you we know, are sitting in my law firm conference room. Yeah, yeah. Have, so I know. It's, it's, gotta, it's out of jealousy. But if yeah. you could fight club yourself, uh, Andrew, where you say, "Hey, I got to sell my own practice to my own group," and I just think this would be really interesting for dentists of any age to think about or, or just learn. What would it feel like? when you transition, you've sold your practice to a DSO or partnered with North American Dental Group, the closing has happened, and then you go into work the next day. Since you're a dentist, I'm a dentist, how would this feel? What modifications would you made, both good and bad as a judgment, but like, if that was me, Andrew, which responsibilities could I say, oh, they're not for me anymore? Or, you know, what what type of feel would that have uh, to the dentist owner? You know, that, that's actually a really good question. Um, I, I think there's a couple parts there. So one is that first day of now we're partners and, and we're in the same family, that really depends on what happened pre um, along the way. And it, it seems to be the, um, the first inclination for the doctor or founders to not tell his team along the way that he's considering this and then you know along the years we've done that where you know surprise i've now sold my practice um even if their partner is like hey i'm i'm still gonna be here but now you have a new place that's you know cutting your paychecks and you know what even if you try to minimize the transition and and make it as slow as possible there's this no matter what you say that first day they're not even listening because it's like what's going on and they start to have these fears and anxiety all of a sudden come. So, so pre-transition or pre-partnership, um, we really encourage open dialogue. And I certainly understand where the, the trepidation comes from is you kind of want to get, um, and even from the, the advisors of the dentist are like, hey, if the ink's not dry, you don't want to tell and disrupt anything. And and, and I understand that mindset, but I really think just being able to be honest with your team as to, hey, this is something exciting I'm considering, maybe let them ask questions to you, not even including us at all at first. The earlier that that conversation happens with, you know, the, the owning doctor or doctors and their other associates as well as their team members ahead of it really goes a long way. Um, but what you can expect once it happens is, okay, that we typically do somewhat of a social meeting and, and do what we call like a meet and greet and try to keep it culturally relevant and not get into all of the weeds. But all of the questions are, hey, do I still have a job? Do I still have um, – w- what is the compensation like? like or do those change and all those? And I think every group or DSO probably handles it differently. Um, but for us, you try to be as, um, yeah, there are definitely a couple changes that come, you know, there's a different organization that is now, um, you know, processing different things, but the first couple months you, you try to do next to nothing, you know, just, Hey, you're still treating patients at the end of the day, this is still where you're coming to work and the people around you should still be the people around you. So, you know, by and large, after the first uh, announcement or something, there's a little bit of concern, and then it tends to um, hopefully become pretty positive and and try to make it culturally exciting and things like that for for everybody. But yeah, that first day, depending on what happens, you know, pre partnership is I think what sets the tone for the initial energy that comes out of the gates for day one. But then it's up to us the first 90 days to build trust, to build positive energy, um, and to continue. Because there's always initial anxiety and fear of change. So just general change management, you have to respect that and appreciate it. So I don't want to talk negative about it, but that's just the reality of what what we um, what we interface with. Yeah, I mean, when we represent a lot of sellers, but probably more buyers now, and we hate it 
when the seller doesn't want to allow the buyer to talk to the staff or right, to yeah. the team. And I get it. You know, if you represent a seller, you want to make sure that everything's actually going to come to fruition. But it's a very tough uh, environment to try to transition that goodwill and that vibe if everybody feels like they've kind of been hoodwinked by, you know, the yeah. whatever process is, has been going on for whatever length of time. It's a tough uh a tough place to start from from a buyer's perspective. Yeah, yeah, and they, like you said, I, I certainly understand it. Um, but to whatever degree you can, you know, hopefully you get a little bit of openness of the seller to to their team. What are some so, things? Then, I mean, yeah, even better if we could get in front of them ahead of the game because that way you can build um, build trust earlier on. How often does that actually happen for you? You know, we actually, most of them um, are, are shifting it and kind of understanding that this is a really uh, helpful point. And as we've grown now, we can allow them to speak ahead of time with newer partners or individuals that have been partners with us for multiple years. So we kind of say, hey, you know, unfiltered access, talk to people that are part of our group ahead of time and ask how they've done the transition and you know they can speak honestly of what worked and what didn't so and it seems to be that most of them say hey yeah i did this and i had like the ones that waited until the day before the day of to tell their teams they kind of talked to yeah maybe i would have thought about that differently and as any transaction is you know, while you might be scrambling at the last couple of weeks to make things come together, you tend to know well ahead of that if this is something that's going to come together or not. So, you know, there's usually more than ample time to to find ways to communicate and, and have those meet and greets ahead of time. Right. And I think your model kind of lends itself more towards wanting to disclose it. I mean, it's one thing. To, to not tell your staff if you're planning on selling the practice and walking out the door the next day and essentially never coming back. But if you're, if the plan is you're going to be a partner and yeah. remain in that practice and you know, the day after you're going to have to answer all these questions, you know, it, it's a lot harder for the seller to, uh, you know, to, to resist uh, that direct uh, and, and, and pre-closing contact. Exactly. Exactly. That, that does go a long way. And I think it's also why over time we've really niched more to that is the, the culture of what you're bringing on is largely connected to the leadership that's been there. So if that's not continues to be there, you know, we've seen it's just harder to go through the change management. There's likely more attrition of team members, um, and, and that's, usually not the best outcome from from how the partnership can go. What are, what are some things, Andrew, like I say, you're kind of a two-part question. You're preparing to sell to a, a – what can dentists do to prepare to sell to a DSO? And then, you know, what are some things that have gone awry or we have our organization called drop nachos where, you know, the deal didn't come to fruition, you know, where, you know, you were getting ready to sell and connect with this dentist and things went uh, sideways or just stalled. So kind of what could dentists do if they were preparing to sell to a DSO and things that maybe they could avoid to have a deal stall or, or not come to fruition? You know, a DSO is always going to create a value for what it is that they're going to um, be, be acquiring. So if you have a, um, an opportunity, if there's places where you can grow value and you, you always want to allow the dentist to be able to um what opportunities do you have in your office or what are things that you know if you concentrated on so let's say you're you're looking at that and you're even looking hey maybe in the next 18 24 months what are things that you want to do in your in your own office to be able to improve on what are things that you can focus on what are areas that you want to integrate so you know make your office um up to date like it's not it goes a long way, even the optics of the office, you know, is the, are the equipment old and dated and they're needing to be um, replaced. And you probably want to just go ahead and take care of that because it'll, it's no different than even if you're selling your house. Like if you paint the walls and, and 
stage it a little bit better. It'll show better, and you'll get much more than the dollars you put into to catching that stuff up just because of the optics of the whole thing. So um, there's definitely things that are just purely objective, so it's not like you can't just polish something up and hope that if it's not good bones behind it, that'll show through. Um, but those types of things is just keep your practice modern, keep your your um, your whole business model and you know, where the opportunities are, you know, put those into place ahead of time. Don't, it's not that the DSO can't and couldn't give capital towards it, but you're going to sacrifice probably some value beforehand. Um, things that kind of the drop deads or, or things that derail a um, opportunity. Yeah, I think that it kind of connects back to that. If you're looking at a practice and some things are, are good, but there's a lot that, the DSO is going to need to do to put into it. I mean, there might be some groups that that's their model, um, but you know, sometimes you can look at it and say, hey, there's just a lot to invest here. And that's not always in equipment. You know, even in team members, like if, you're, if your practice is kind of running on bare bones and you, and you need to have more resources, if the organization feels like, hey, there's going to be a lot to integrate to try to get this up to a certain standard, you know, those are things that you kind of um, can turn off a potential partner. Gotcha, and thanks. then the other thing is it's not necessarily a negative. It's just a, this goes both ways. If something's not a fit, it's just not a fit. And if you're hoping to sell something, but you just don't feel like they're the best, um, that they're not aligned, that both sides should equally just shake hands and say, hey, this isn't going to integrate really well together. So... I think that goes on both sides is just to really get honest about the culture of whoever it is that you're um, going to partner with and make sure that it aligns. Yeah. And that's, it's really interesting and not surprising to hear. I mean, it's something that Paul and I talk about a lot and we've talked a lot about on on the show. I mean, we have Jamie Amos on who's a friend of ours who uh, is uh, a great, practice, uh, startup practice consultant. And when he talks about transitioning practices, which is kind of outside of his, his normal world now, because he's doing all the de novo stuff, but he refers to it as the surfer yeah. dentist, you know, and that a surfer dentist should only sell to another surfer dentist. And I think, you know, sort of that, that metaphor, you know, gets lost in a lot of people that I think a lot of young dentists go out and they're just looking for not even profitability. They're looking for revenue. You know, they're so just absolutely focused and fixated on that without really paying attention to the the culture of the practice and whether, you know, it's going to be a good fit from a transition standpoint. And then, I, so I sit here now and listen to you yeah. talk about this with, you know, 205 locations. Obviously, you guys are professional dental practice acquirers yeah. and you look at that as, as a very significant thing. I just, I see a lot of people, Paul, I'm curious what your take is on this, that as buyers, they just don't pay enough attention to that and that they're willing to make concessions when it comes to the cultural similarity with what their vision is and what they're buying just because the, the, the revenue number is higher. It's, you know, it's important because uh, Robin, I've kind of repurposed one of his good jokes to uh, dental offices are people places. They're not pizza places. And, you know, they really require uh, it's all about people. But dentists don't really learn about people in the business world, like we noted. And it just can be a long difficult career if you don't acquire the right practice or even with you guys andrew i'm sure with multiple locations you're still not looking for a misfit because uh i think it's just it could be very challenging on both both sides to deal with that misfit post post acquisition so learn as much as possible beforehand that brings me to a good point andrew i want to ask you is that now let's take it to the young dentist side okay associates that you guys are hiring or connecting with I have a, a great group that, you know, try to help them find jobs, whether it's with DSOs or private practices. So tell me a little bit about your culture with uh, the dentist out of school or residencies, the hiring process, what they could expect if they worked in one of the locations. Would they be by themselves? Would they be with a mentor dentist? I know you said mentorship was important, so I'm uh, interested to hear about that. Yeah, you know, I think that it's a good shift. And I think it comes back to the same thing is, you mentioned buyers saying, hey, they kind of shiny object about a production number and they say, hey, I'm going to buy this because it's going to help me grow from this revenue to this revenue. 
the same thing exists with associates. I mean, you can get, um, you know, sticker happy as, hey, th- these are paying this and paying that. Especially a young dentist out of school, your five-year plan should be what can you do to build your career foundation so that you can be up and to the right over time. If you're looking to come out, and I find a lot of young dentists are like, hey, I want to make this day one, it really should um, be something that just naturally dentistry is a model that if you can provide yourself with, you know, scope of service or ability to be efficient and to be able to be a well-rounded dentist, and that doesn't mean that you're doing all types of procedures necessarily, but if you have a good solid foundation to your clinical capacity, you're going to do well. And if you find a place that can help in that, and if you can be honest about what it is that you need, unfortunately, there is a bit of like, you just don't know yet, right? You've never been in private practice, but I'd be less worried about your first two, three years and what dollar amount you're going to make than it is of what environment can help me build the the I mean, that's such good advice. And I've said that numerous times. And I know we're kind of the same generation dentist. And I totally understand the young dentist concern with loans. But you know, I I help when all these job finding things, and then someone will say, Paul, I have a job that's 160, and another one's 120. And I want to take the 160. And I said, it's the same amount of money. And they say, no, it's not. And I said, it's totally the same. You just don't see it that way. You need to take the one that's going to help you, as you said, provide for a good foundation in your career. And it's just if you just like, a misfit with a, a, a acquisition, you know, a misfit with a job. I tell the young dentist, you know, they, you know, they'll say, I, my friend got another job, but it could be a, a morale, a real morale killer when you first get out of, of school or residency. So they need to spend just as much time carefully uh, finding a good fit. And I just wish there was more in dental schools that would help them with this because I think it's just important. I mean, I joke with Rob that he's going to let me be one of our, his summer interns here and I could just bang a gavel and yell, you can't handle the truth because I think that's all they do in law, Andrew. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have such a better model law because they have interns that get to be here and they're paid and they work alongside real lawyers. And you know, maybe someone's worked here. I, I I couldn't imagine this happening, but they said, maybe I don't want to spend the rest of my career dealing with dentists. Never happens. Yeah, yeah right. Happens. So, Everybody loves it. But, you know, they all cool that is, Andrew. Right. They get to test it out, right? And right. Rob wins and they win, and it's a great experience. And we should have this in dentistry, but it's just, unfortunately, we don't. And it's all, you finish fourth year, you finish your res- residency, and you have to go from there. And I just wish there was more opportunities in third and fourth year of dental school to have intera- meaningful interaction in dental practices, not just observing over my shoulder. You know, I'm, I, I try to be engaging and, and funny, but that gets old after a while, where they could actually be working side by side with us like summer law interns. And uh, I agree with you 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I, I think there's something that there's a gap somewhere along the way right now in the industry of um, and I'm not bashing dental schools and this isn't meant to be about that. But you're right. There's a lot of professions like the intern year or in medicine. There's, you know, several PGY years that kind of hone in and whether it's a residency or some other mechanism, there needs to be a better way to, you know, launch the first two, three years of getting a very solid um, confidence. It's partly confidence. It's partly just, you know, hit rates. Like if you've just not seen as many of them in dental school by nature, most of them, you only come across so many different things. So you're, you're just not going to have the ability to have seen it all. I mean, I, I can tell you about experience I had, and I think Ron knows about this. I've only had two jobs, waiter and dentist in my life, but uh, I did have one summer where I worked for Bloomberg when I was 16. So that, you know, it's now like 25 years ago. But it was meaningful to me because Bloomberg would hire very bright people from, you know, top colleges and he wouldn't pay them a lot, but they would learn for that year. And I, you know, I was close to college then. And then they would go on with their careers. And I, I've actually tried to replicate that somewhat myself in my own practices where we have somewhat of a private practice GPR where they, you know, definitely make associate money, but they learn a variety of things that they can build their career on, whether they stay with us for three, four, five years or the rest of their career, because I just think it's an important time to learn that. And uh, I like, you know, just saying the same thing. I wish there was more of that in our, in our industry. Yeah. And I commend you for the boot camp and things that you're doing, because you're right. It's not just the clinical. um, It's just, there's just so many things that, that you're going to learn in those first few years. So, Thanks. you know, be it financial, be it 
leadership. And, and I, I like that you integrate a number of different things into that. Thanks. Appreciate that. Andrew, so, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, we hear people talking about the fact that you know, the end of practice ownership or private practice ownership is is imminent, you know, and obviously you're, you're part of the of the big DSO world, which, you know, some people perceive as as a threat to that to that practice ownership model. But, you know, where do you see the dental industry going over the next five years and, and 10 years? I mean, do you think that uh, you know, private practice ownership will will be able to continue on, or uh, is the model that that you guys are espousing going to going to replace that? You know, I, I think it's I think there's just going to be a whole lot of um, evolution in the industry. I think that there's going to be certainly a, a shift to group, and that group doesn't all necessarily need to be the perception of, you know, the corporate or the DSO models. I think it, it is interesting how many dentists are, are entrepreneurial and starting small groups. And, and that is still very much a private enterprise. So I think there's going to be a lot more um, groups for sure. And they're going to be a whole spectrum of, you know, privately owned to, you know, maybe multiple partners to, um, to equity supported or, or something like that. I don't know about the public markets. I don't, I don't know about that shift, but I, I think there's going to be different models, but I think there's going to be a lot more partnerships. I think that maybe solo pr- practitioners, I think that is going to dwindle over time, certainly in the next decade. That's just my prediction. Um, but I don't think that that means that the cottage aspect of dentistry is going to go away. I think there's going to be a constant you know, I think patients look to connect with a provider, and um, I think that that relationship is still going to be a very big component to how dentistry is delivered. So I think that that aspect of private practice, that kind of goodwill component, I think is still going to be, you know, very much relevant. So what's behind that and what kind of mechanism I think that may shift. Um, but then I also think that the industry as a whole outside of the practice model, you know, how payers are, are, are handling, you know, all of these different things and how they're working with groups as well as single providers and even how state boards are, are regulating the whole thing. I I think that there's just going to be a lot of evolution in the next 10 years. And, um, and I think it's actually going to ultimately be good for patient care. Um, so long as, you know, th- those that are doing it are continuing to try to be um, just mindful about things. And, and But ultimately, I do think that patient care is going to continue to be um, navigated and things are going to innovate in, the, in, I think, a positive way. It's yeah, cool. So, uh, you know, uh, we're going to wrap it up in a, in a few minutes here, but I have to ask, you know, so you're a chairside dentist uh, a couple of days a week. You're obviously very involved uh, in the uh, in the DSO and the corporate management world of, of, of a large number of, of practices. Uh, talk to us about your training schedule. I mean, you're not uh, you're not doing like little fun runs on the weekends. These are big time races that, that you do that, that require a lot of preparation. But so tell us what, what the, uh, what the, uh, the Andrew Matta, uh, triathlon training schedule looks like on, on any given week. Uh, so, you know, I think that kind of ebbs and flows with, um, the season. So, you know, being somebody that lives in the Northeast, most of my training is indoors in the winter. So it's always early morning. Like that's just, something that I've gotten conditioned to is you get up early and you start with training. So how, how early are we talking uh, here, Andrew? Four thirty. Yeah. Amen. Brother. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are got to be, yeah, ready to go and try to get, um, at least an hour, sometimes 90 minutes. And if you're really going, if, if, if it's a full Ironman event, you know, you're starting to get to 18 to 20 hours of training a week, but a lot of that's weekend. Um, so you hope to try to get 90 minutes during the week, um, every morning and then what you can do on a Saturday, Sunday. So, um, so for me, cause it's on a little bit of cruise control, you can, you can notch it up and down pretty easily. So right now I'm, I'm not pushing towards a certain event. So it's just get up and, and do 60 minutes of something. 
and then as I see a race coming 12 weeks out, then I'll start to kind of focus on it and make sure to be a little bit more structured and, and consistent. I think it's, it's just so important to do that. And this is, you know, we, we talk to a lot of our guests about this and the importance of taking care of yourself. And it's just, it's so easy to just to try to talk yourself out of, out of working out or taking care of yourself as, as a professional. But, you know, it's, I, I think it's crucial just for, to keep you in the game, in the, in the dental game for longer, or any kind of profession, that you have a good, uh, a good life balance and, you know, the ability to, to work out and to exercise is just, it's, to me, I think it's, it's got to be non-negotiable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just, it's so important. And you find that when you, um, when you make it a priority and you fit it in, you, you just find a way to be efficient about everything else and, and not, I think it's also just eliminating some nonsense time that you don't necessarily need to, um, to do. So then it creates a better balance and the stuff that doesn't need to be on your plate, you, you kind of get rid of. I think that's one of when you talk about group practice and my actually my dad and his partner used to do it at lunch years ago when there was no emails or cell phones. Ideally, I would love to infuse it, especially as a dentist, into the middle of your day. I think it would be awesome. It's just that you, you oftentimes find that the middle of your day is just you know gets filled with uh, fire extinguishing things. But you know, as as a dentist, I just think it would be great to have a break in the middle of your day to do something like that, fit a- actively and reset yourself. It's just as hard to get that logistically set in the middle of a dental day it's hard it's hard in any profession yeah, yeah but my my folks i mean I have justin weaver in my office he goes and he'll do a spinning class at lunch a few yeah. days a week and uh, alex too and anna you know she runs marathon so i mean these people you can do it you yeah know, it's just a matter of you know just blocking the time out and saying this is what i'm going to be doing from 12 to 115. Well, I think what I was alluding to is a, I'm Rob's favorite client that comes to the office, Andrew, but I'm the only client that comes to the <laughs> office. And you just say, when you're a dentist, sometimes you see 27 human beings in the morning. It'd be nice to get like a reset and say, okay, I'll go work yeah. out for my next 27 in the afternoon. But uh, that's awesome, Andrew. Hey, it's great. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's really been uh, super having you on the show. And thanks for, uh, for sharing your insight. Uh, I know we have a lot of people, a lot of listeners that are curious to kind of hear like, peek behind the curtain of the uh of the dso world so so thanks thanks for doing that today uh if uh if our listeners want to uh get in touch with you uh what is uh what is the best way for them to uh to do that so my email address is probably the easiest way to connect with me and that's dr andrew matta dr andrew matta at nadentalgroup.com and for North American nadentalgroup.com. Cool. We'll have that up on uh, on the show notes. And uh, so uh, thanks again. And uh, good luck uh, in your uh, upcoming races, too. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. You, too. Another great guest, Paul, huh? Yeah, really just uh, eye-opening to hear what DSOs think about. And I think it's just cool and you know, to kind of use one of your phrases for dentists and everyone involved. There's just be aware of what's out there. Yeah, yeah, we heard that a few times, you know, really talking about preparation and planning, right? And then I also thought that, you know, hearing Andrew talk about the importance of the cultural fit in a practice transition. Yeah. You know, we see so many people, I think, really kind of uh, disregard or overlook that aspect of things. And these guys are professional dental practice purchasers. Yeah. And and they still place... uh, an emphasis on it. And I also thought it was interesting that, you know, th- here that they're not looking to fix problems. So again, as you said, you know, it takes a long time to kind of undo a, a bad deal or it takes a lot of resources to deal with that. But, you know, when they're looking at practices, if they see things that don't look right, that don't fit their model, there aren't the cultural fit, or if it's going to take too much time to fix it, they pass. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's like to use a football kind of comparison. Uh, to ex-Philly coach uh, Andy Reid, who's had so much success, but, you know, trying to get to that Super Bowl win, they want, you know, the 10 and 6 teams to take them to 12 and twelve and 4 as opposed to try to turn around a franchise, which isn't, impo- as he said, that's not impossible. It's just not doesn't fit into their model. Yeah, it's cool. And I, I think it was also interesting, something I hadn't realized uh, before we had uh, Andrew on the show, that uh, that he got a uh, an MBA, you know, which yeah. kind of at the same time or immediately after his uh, – 
his dental school, I guess, you know, so he finished it up when he was in his residency. So I'm going to say that that's all happened at yeah, the same it's time. Very cool. I think what you've also been uh, bringing up for our listeners with the importance of, you know, mental health, physical health, uh, you know, treating yourself well, it, you just apply that to your practice and, you know, just being aware and thinking about these things and the business side of things early in your career is just a win. Just like being aware and thinking of exercising in the early part of your life is a win, like nutrition. And, uh, you know, I think dental schools just don't place any emphasis on it. And sometimes I think they do even worse and want you to shy away from it. But then when you get out into the world, whether you're a solo practice owner, a group or a DSO, it's, it's just, it's important, yeah. you know, and, uh, what dental students can learn and young dentists can learn is just to their benefit. Yeah, and I think what we see is the people that are really successful are the people that go outside of dental school and outside the dental space for that education. You know, we're hearing, uh, you know, uh, Andrew doing his MBA. You know, we talked to Mark Costas before, you know, who said it, how important it is to go out and, and meet other dentists yeah. and, do, and do CE and, and do that while you're in dental school. And I think, you know, I, I, from my perspective, I don't see dental schools changing anytime soon. So I don't think people should necessarily expect to get I, yeah, this from I said dental that, school. I said that just in one of the groups. I said, you know, I, you can wish it was different, but to change the dental school environment is going to take a, a long time and you're just going to have to find your own way and invest your own time, energy, and money in whatever way you can into developing these skills. And no one regrets it. As Mark said about, Mark Haas said about, you know, being with office managers, learning about insurance, or we've had, you know, other dentists from my groups take a lot of C while they were in school. They, they just are, are so happy that they did it. It's hard to catch up later. So I think that message is so important. Yeah, same here. Thanks, Amigo. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.